Welcome to the Gay and Lesbian, and I don't know what else they had on the top of the title, but the Gay and Lesbian Workshop, uh, or Reader's Workshop, I guess, because the other one would be a little bit too broad. My name is Ellen, and I am a food addict and a compulsive reader. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Uh, and your moderator for this meeting. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please make sure. Uh, this session is being taped to protect our anonymity. No photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed, besides the one that we are doing. Uh, the opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 Overeaters Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. Please remember two, two hatters. I, was like, I thought that was two haters, and I thought, how do they know this is going to be the gay and lesbian? Two hatters, i.e. OA members affiliated with related facilities or other 12-step programs are required to speak on their recovery in the OA program only. An OA basket basket will be circulated for the question and answer portion of this session. If there, if there are any press in the room, please respect our anonymity by not taking any pictures, using a video camera, or using our full names. The format for this session is as follows. Two speakers will share for 25 minutes each, followed by 15 minutes of questions and answers. Our topic for this session is, once again, gay and lesbian, overeating issues, etc. cetera. <laughs> uh, our first speaker is Joe, and our second speaker is Mace. Uh, go ahead, Joe. And I'm going to pass the basket, too, for this. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. I'm Joe. I'm the compulsive overeater. Um, and I'm a little nervous. Um, Okay, um, my compulsive overeating started when I was in probably the fourth grade is when I could remember it. And um, there was a lot, I think in the seventh grade I started, I was, just remember in grade school I was really shy, I was a little bit awkward, I always felt like I was different, something was wrong, I was shy, and um I, I wanted to get it. I had an older sister who I always felt got more attention than me. She was bright. She was beautiful. She was um, older, and my dad loved her incredibly. And by the time I was in grade school, my parents were breaking up, and um, I started to comfort myself with food. And then, um, and then my mother started having a lot of emotional problems around the divorce, and and. The way I coped was with food, and then um, probably started dieting with her. My my body, like I thought I was a normal size, and looking back at some of the pictures, I was just talking to Mace, looking back at some of the pictures when I was like young, I was thin, but my aunts and my mom and my grandparents, my mother was obese um, as a teenager, and she was afraid we were going to be obese and it would be passed on, and you know, there started to become a lot of attention on my body, and I started, you know, I started getting a little bit chubby and then husky, and um, and there was a lot of attention on my body and losing weight. And I think, and I realized at that point I could get attention by losing weight and dieting with my mom, and that was a way to get close and get attention. So I started doing diets with her, and I did the original Atkins diet and a whole bunch of other stuff, and then started doing Weight Watchers and all that. And in the seventh grade, I started um, playing basketball on our grade grade school team, and I was awkward, and I didn't like the practice. And I and I noticed that looking back, I like to be an expert at something, but I don't like the process to get there. Like I don't like to go through the pain. I don't like to make mistakes. 
and I didn't practice, so I wasn't good, and I was awkward. And then I noticed, and I won't say his last name, our basketball coach was named Bobby, and I grew up in an Italian household, and he was Italian, and he was in high school, and he was hot, and he was the first guy I started, you know, feeling attracted to, and I knew, you know, I was taught that that was wrong, you know. Um, the church taught me that, my parents did, so, and I tried to block it out, ignore it, and, um, and then I remember being just obsessed with music and my sister grew up in like the disco era and just um, getting like Donna Summer's Bad Girls and <laughs> being obsessed and one of the pictures I have of my pictures is just being in Hollywood at her star and you know it should have been an inkling to my family they were shocked when I came out but you know <laughs> what boys would just spend hours upon hours in their room just you know um, listening to bad girls over and over and over <laughs> and hot stuff. Um, but I was clueless, so I'll pass around my, I only got two of the pictures. Um, one is, and you can see the hair, it'll show my age, and I had big hair. And, um, and you know, I didn't know, I didn't want to know that I was gay. And there was a whole bunch of stuff. Like I was growing up, I was shy. My parents were divorcing. My mother got remarried pretty quickly to an alcoholic. And my only coping mechanism was food. And I remember freshman year of high school, I started over-exercising and starving myself. I went to Weight Watchers, and it was just me and a bunch of um, women who were probably like, you know, I don't know how much older than me, and I just did not want to fit in. And I started starving myself, and I became anorexic for a while. And I remember just going back sophomore year in high school and being underweight. I was probably this height and about 30 pounds lighter than I was now. And my mother was, in that time, they just drugged you up. So my mother was like, oh, that's great. You look great. And I was really underweight and really needed help at that point. And it it didn't last long. I, I'm mostly on the overeating side of the disease, so it snapped back, and I was probably, by the end of sophomore year, up around 200 or over 200 pounds. My high weight is about 300 pounds, and I've been this weight. I'm about one, between 165 and 170 right now. My weight's been pretty consistent for about nine years now. Um, today is... Um, actually my 10-year um, abstinence anniversary in LA, which is amazing. And my, my first sponsor sent me a message last night. I remember talking to him, um, never thinking I could get 30 days in program, and he just said, look around the rooms and just see all the people who are abstinent. He's like, we were all drawn here for the same reason, for recovery. Our higher powers want us to have abstinence and recovery. And he just kept telling me over and over and over until I started to believe it. Um, so high school was, um, I went to a Roman Catholic all-boys high school. And I was lucky because at that point I was like tall for my age and people didn't really screw with me because they were afraid, you know, there was some anger there. So they were afraid to, to screw with me. And sophomore year in high school I met my first boyfriend who's in the picture. And he was the exact opposite. Like, I didn't have to come out sort of like they assumed he was gay, so I was gay by association. And, um, but I dated, I dated some girls in high school, and, you know, I went to prom. I went with an exchange student to prom, so I wasn't really seriously dating anybody. We were friends and not, you know, saying what we really were until after we were in college together. And, um, I think it was probably I was probably just graduating high school, and my mother had walked. My mother didn't have any boundaries, so she walked in on us um, after we had just had sex, and that's how I that was my coming out story. Was well, the most beautiful story, and um, but it's the truth, and you know it brought up a whole bunch. Like a lot of my stories about shame because I felt shame about being gay. Um, and then it just started off like I didn't, there was a lot of I'm a freak, something's wrong with me. It fed into who I dated, who I had sex with. And, you know, I, I had, I remember going to uh, the mall in northeast Philadelphia, that's where I'm from. And, 
you know, noticing like guys having sex in the bathroom and then thinking that's all I deserved. And I did that for a long time. I had sex with one of the security guards who's supposed to be stopping all that stuff <laughs> at the place. And, um, you know, I didn't think I deserved anything. And there was like, my self-esteem was so bad. I thought, you know, if I hooked up with someone who I thought was hot, then somehow I thought that I would feel attractive. And it was just like the food, like I just tried it over and over. And if I did hook up with somebody who I thought was attractive, it didn't work. But I thought, well, next time it will. Maybe the next guy will. And there's a lot of people like that I had sex with that I wouldn't even, you know, let in my apartment, my condo building today. It was just, I was desperate. You know, I was desperate. I thought it was that I wanted to be loved. I wanted... I wanted to feel okay. I wanted to feel loved, and um, and I learned about OA in 1990. Um, and you know, I saw a commercial at night, and it was a woman opened the refrigerator, and she was crying. And um, the the narrator said, "You don't ever have to live like that again." And it got me to a meeting, and I didn't want to identify with anyone. And all I could see was I wanted to be thin. I wanted to be thin because that meant I could get a boyfriend, and that's all I could see. I had nothing else to give at that point, and the steps have changed that for me. Um, So I came into program. I went in and out, in and out, in and out. My first relationship with the guy in the picture broke up. We were probably about 24 years old. And I went back to program because I was overweight, and I drove him crazy just with, I didn't believe he could love me because I was overweight, because I didn't love myself. And I would just create all this drama and all these, well, if you love, if I did this and you love me, then I have to give him some other type of challenge. And um, people said, you know, get a sponsor, work the steps, um, stay out of relationships, maybe a first year recovery, don't do anything major. And I thought people were crazy. I wanted to lose weight, didn't want to sponsor, didn't want to work the steps. And I just went to lose, you know, I thought I'd just stay in, lose enough weight, and then get a boyfriend, and then I didn't need you people again. And, you know, I I went to a lot of meetings, but I didn't have a good program. And I hooked up with this guy, um, who was my second major boyfriend, and, you know, three months later, we were living together, and it was a pretty sick relationship. I wasn't working the steps, so I wasn't attracting anybody who was healthy, because I was unhealthy. And he became my higher power. So I had a lot of higher powers, um, you know. And when I was very young, I wanted to be a priest. I used to, like, do all this, all masses and stuff. And I was so close to my higher power as a kid. But then at some point, I just shut it out. And it was with food and um, mostly with food and then men and just fear that my higher power didn't accept me. And one of the gifts that my sponsor and people in program gave to me was a higher power that did love me unconditionally, wanted me to recover, wanted more for me than just hooking up with people um, that I didn't know or that I didn't feel like I had a choice in being with. Um, So we lived together about three and a half years and I went into therapy. I was really depressed. I was in and out of program. And my my therapist was tired of hearing me just talk about my body, about him, about if he changed, then my life would be okay, if my job changed. And she pushed me to go back to OA. And I came back, and at that point we were broken up, and I had stopped dating for like a year um, before I came back in the program. And I came back in, I was pretty desperate, and I got a sponsor who got me working the steps. And I think that's where life, just not in recovery, but as a gay man, changed because my sponsor um, was a gay man who had lost a significant amount of weight and was working the steps and was reasonably sane and happy. And I wanted what he had. And, you know, he was pretty hardcore, and I listened to most of the time everything he said, and um, I started just being honest. The first thing was about my weight because I lied. 
I would be, I was one of those people on the, you know, internet dating with the fake picture and lying about what I looked like and lying about who I was because I thought I could put you off long enough to lose the weight to be the size that I said I was <laughs> when we were chatting up. And um, so first it was being honest about what I really weighed with him and then my food history and then working the steps with him. And, you know, I had slipped to him that I had a little problem with staying abstinent and being in a relationship. So he had me commit to not being in a relationship. And he used the hook that, you know, once you get through step seven, you're going to attract people that are healthier and, you know, you'll be healthier and you'll have great relationships. So that sort of just got me working the steps. I was like plowing through the steps. I wanted to get through step four because I wanted to get through to step seven because we would joke, once you get through step seven, then you get married. You get a boyfriend, you get married. <laughs> and, um, but the steps were what changed my life. You know, step four was painful. I had to look at all the sex, the cheating on boyfriends, the repeating of my father's patterns. And at that point, I was getting down to, I got down to about 200 pounds and I was scared shitless and I was about to leave program because, you know, I was about, I still had like 30 pounds to lose at that point and I was afraid to do it. I was afraid to be in a thin body because um, I always thought that if I was rejected by gay men, it was because I was fat. So that was always my excuse. I always had me between me and my partners or boyfriends or jobs. It was all, and it took a lot to be in a thin body. Um, a lot of working the steps, a lot of fear. I felt, for about six months, I felt like raw and naked once I got to what my natural weight was. But then I got past it. And a lot of people get to that point and like leave program or stay. And it was tough, but you get through it like anything else. And a lot of the promises happened from doing that work, I think. A lot of my self-esteem came from that. And um, so at that point, I think I was about 11 months in, and I realized I had intimacy problems too. And I remember I had had a little slip with the no dating, no sex thing, with, um, and I had picked up someone online who worked at, I think like Johnny Rockets or someone, someone totally inappropriate. And he came over to, and we were, he was just going to give me a massage. We weren't going to have sex. And that does not work, by the way. Cuddling or massage does not work. So I told my sponsor, he's like, I think it was a gift from my higher power because it helped me with intimacy, being touched. I thought, and he's like, he has never met someone who can manipulate the will of higher power like me. That was what he said to me. Um, okay. And, um, and then... You know, after I got through step seven, I got to a point where, you know, it was weird that I didn't, you know, I felt okay not dating, and which freaked me out. And then later I had met someone who I was with for about five years, and he was moving. I started in Philadelphia. We moved to Virginia. And through examples of people in program, I was able to move to another city to start program there and to build a life there and to be in my first like adult, really adult relationship. And we looked at a lot of things, what makes sense for us, you know, is it a committed relationship? Is it, we looked at all of that stuff, which was hard to talk about. And I was able to do all of that stuff. And his food plan was totally different than mine. He ate, he wasn't in programming, he ate everything. And I was a lot more restrictive at that point. But it taught me to have like he has his food and I have my food and work on a lot of boundary stuff. We bought a house together and, um, you know, we did a lot of stuff. It was funny, um, last night the speaker was saying, I remember when we were painting this one of our rooms and we did it in red as the first room we were going to paint together, which was crazy because we did seven coats of paint. And I remember one day I was like, it doesn't look right, it doesn't look right. And that, it was a Saturday morning, and he's like, do you think you're going to go to the meeting this morning? And I was like, <laughs> I was just like oh, fuck, I must really be crazy today. Um, but he, you know, we were together for five years, and, um, you know, the relationship came to an end. And we both had grown apart, and we're like best friends today. Um, but it was painful, and through program I was able to you know, live through that. And I remember closing the door every Monday morning at work and just crying for hours. And then eventually I got through it. And then, 
it was sort of like I had gone through like I never had the quote unquote twink years. You know, I was fat at that point. I never had the BOI years because I was obese and through all of that stuff. So I felt like now I get the chest out the body. You know, I've had this, you know, I was finally thin. I was, and I was thin, I was single, and then I learned how, you know, people taught me how to date, and I made a lot of mistakes, and I did a lot of 10 steps about it. And um, I went through a, a period of my life where my friends in program just started, you know, you know, describing my boyfriends or who I was dating at the point by which country is he from. So I like went through like so many different like it, it, they would call one guy Egyptian number one, and I met Egyptian number two. His name's Eric, and he was the guy that I got to San Francisco for. Um, like I wanted to move to San Francisco for like eight years, and when I first had gotten back in the program, my spot I was telling my sponsor, I'm going to move to San Francisco. My life is going to change. Everything will be better. My food will be better. And I had like probably two weeks of abstinence at that point. And he's like, well, why don't you wait until you have a year and then talk about it? And then I had moved to Virginia and all that. So I met Eric and I hooked up with him like I did with Kevin. And like I had fallen in love with this image of somebody. And we did the long distance thing. And, you know, it was an excuse to help get me to San Francisco where I live now. Um, and it was painful because I moved to San Francisco. I knew a few people from traveling for business through program, but I didn't have a support system. And I think like three months after I was here, I left the relationship because I realized, you know, he wasn't available and I have a history of chasing people who aren't available. And then, um, and it wasn't just the right match. And, but it got me to San Francisco and I decided to give it a try and program is amazing there. And I learned to get through that with, you know, a lot of support from people I started making friends with and friends from the East Coast and program. And then I started learning to date again. And, you know, and San Francisco is like a candy store. I mean, I, I mean, on the street you can meet people, in cafes, you go to Gold's Gym, and I mean, everywhere. Um, and I learned to see what was right for me. I had a new sponsor, and she had me do, you know, one or two ten steps a day. And she wasn't judge. She's like, it's not to judge. It's like, what is right for you? Keep doing your inventory, and you'll see what's meant to be for you. Because I had all this stuff from my parents of what's right and what I should do and what it should be to be a gay man. And, you know, I'm learning still what's right for me. And, and, um... Like body image was another thing, just learning, you know, what's right for me and growing with that. You know, I came, I came, I was about 20 years old when the, all the um, Marky Mark and Calvin Klein stuff and the six packs became the rage. So there's intense body image and learning now the thing is I'm in a relationship and he's in program and, you know, being really intimate is where the work is at now. And... I, it's easy for me to like hook up with somebody. I know how to do that and check out during sex, but actually like being with my partner and being intimate and looking into each other's eyes when we're having sex or just, you know, cuddling and being intimate brings up a lot of fear for me. I've come a long way with it, but you know, that's where my work is at now and staying in the relationship instead of, cause like, I mean, I do therapy as an adjunct to the program because I can't do everything in program. It doesn't handle everything. And part of the work, you know, that I learned is just like that, that kid who didn't want to learn how to, you know, play basketball or learn a language or whatever it is, it's easier for me when it gets hard to take off, to get another job, another apartment, move cities. But some of the work is just staying put and asking each, you know, another twist on one day at a time do I want to be in this relationship today? And when I look at it that way, it's like, yeah, I definitely, you know, I am in love with this person. I want to work on this. And then learning that, you know, there is a way, like talking to people, talking to my sponsor, doing 10 steps that I can ask for what I want, you know, sexually or talk about that stuff. And it makes me cringe because there's still that part of me that thinks if you know too much about me, then you can hurt me or you're going to leave me or some of that stuff. 
and I've slowly been seeing progress with it and not having to eat over it and um, not having to, you know, uh, you know, hook up with somebody instead of just staying with it and being uncomfortable. And I still have, you know, I still flirt like crazy at times and that's sort of like, I justify it. It's almost like a little hit, like sort of like when I used to get on the scale too much. And, you know, that's, and I talk to my friends who are in relationships and other gay men and also my sponsor and she's like, you know, sometimes I do that too. You know, sometimes I like that sometimes and I just keep doing a 10 step about it. And she's like, like I would freak out too, like if I was attracted to other men and I asked her because she's in a long-term relationship and married and just had a child and she has what I want long-term also. And she's like, you know, sometimes I'm wildly attracted to my husband. Sometimes I don't want to see him. She goes, that's part of the normal relationship. And it's part of breaking down that whole Disney kind of, you know, the prince will come along and you'll be happily ever after. And it's, it's a twist to the when I am thin, I will be happy. And, you know, I've been thin a long time and a lot of days I am so happy. Some days I'm miserable. But nobody told me that because I think everyone was sort of living in the future like I was. And um, I guess for today, I'm still learning, I guess, also what it's like to be a gay man who's, I just turned 42 last week, and learning to grow older in, in the community. You know, we're an ageist community, and there's part of me that still wants to be that 18-year-old kid who... You know, 18-year-old kid with muscles and a six-pack, and that's not me. I spent all those years in the disease, but there's still part of me that wants to be that. And, um, you know, part of that is, you know, what I'm giving to my higher power. But the huge thing is I don't have to eat over it, and I'm learning from all of you just, you know, how to do this each day. So thanks for letting me share. My name is Nate, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, I've been in program for nine years. I just realized I was over there counting. I'm not a good time counter, so when people come and say I've been abstinent, you know, for however long or what their day is when they started, I'm not, I don't keep track of my life very well that way, but I have been in program for nine years, and I've been abstinent for the bulk of it. Um, I came into program in San Francisco, and I'm still... That's where, I, where I've done all of my OA work. But I grew up in New Mexico. Um, and so just to quickly qualify, I've lost, I think, 70 pounds. I also don't keep good track of my weight. Um, and, you know, it's, I've had imperfect abstinence for nine years, very imperfect. Um, for the most part, it's been a food-based abstinence. I have yet to kind of get that every single day a spiritual-based abstinence, which is what I really seek. I really seek for the freedom from the obsession, from compulsive overeating. But I'm able to cut. I'm very black and white, as many addicts are. So whatever I cut out can, is easy to stay out for me. Not easy, but it's much easier for me to cut whole food groups out and say, this is too difficult for me to manage, um, than to say, like, certain behaviors, like compulsive behaviors, grazing, picking, thinking about food, looking at other people's food, cruising, great, you know, bakeries, like some of that stuff just I haven't kicked yet. Some days it's com I'm completely serene and chill about my food, and other days I'm a little crazy. So I really do, even though I qualify with my abstinence, I, I like to make it clear that there's some kind of other abstinence that's out there um, and that keeps me in the program. And I think that's true with everything in my life, that there's a sort of a spiritual serenity that, you know, keeping working the steps, staying in program is something, I don't know that I'll ever have spiritual serenity on a daily basis because I'm, you know, really intense control freak addict and so I need to stay in program um, in order to just sort of even be a nice person sometimes. <laughs> so that's sort of who I am. I have pictures and part of my story um, is that my sexuality has gone on a trajectory. So I really believe that when I first started out as a sexual being, I was straight. Um, or maybe bisexual, I don't really know, but I definitely liked dudes when I was younger. Um, 
And, and then slowly over time it changed, you know, and now I would say I'm primarily a lesbian. Um, I'm in a very committed monogamous relationship. In fact, I got married for the third time yesterday to the same person. Um, so, yeah. um, which is sort of silly that we have to do it, you know, so many times. But I think, you know, it's fun anyways. Um, and I'm really pleased and program has given me that, that, like that I can actually get married to the same person three times. Um, a really long, very committed, um, very intimate, growing, changing, difficult relationship. Like it's not always easy and it's not always perfect, but um, willing to do the work and also willing to kind of create a relationship that didn't, doesn't merit, mirror what my parents had, thank God, um, or her parents. Um, and a relationship and a self now where I'm completely willing to be out. So um, I'm going to pass around pictures, and the pictures at the end are of our, what we call our real marriage ceremony, the one where we invited family and friends, not the rushing down to City Hall in 04 and frantically waiting in line, and then yesterday going again. Um, so, and sexuality has sort of always been part of my food stuff. I grew up in a very unconventional home. My parents had um, an open marriage for most of my life, or most of my young life. Um, so I didn't really know, I didn't know that you were, well, let me back up. I'm not sure. I didn't understand that monogamy was the norm, put it that way. I was about to say that you were supposed to be monogamous, but I actually don't believe that people are supposed to be monogamous. I believe that people need to have an agreement that works for them. So, but my parents did apparently have an agreement, and so did all of their friends. So it was me and all my friends, and then all of our parents were kind of like uh, hanging out with each other. Um, and when you're young and that's happening, and they had multiple other sort of serious relationships. So my mom had a, like a very major boyfriend and my dad had many. And in fact is still with one of his, for 35 years, has been with one of his lovers um, and has other lovers. So it was very confusing, but it's also very sexualizing. Like as a kid, when that happens, you're like, what is this about? It, it's about sex. It's not, they were, they were not having sex in front of us, but it's, it's a sexualized energy. And so I really feel like there was something that, you know, kids don't really need that, actually. They need to be aware of their bodies. They need to understand what the parts are for. They need to be aware that it's okay that certain things feel good, like little kids touch themselves. But they don't really need to be aware that their parents are fucking the universe. It's not necessarily helpful. <laughs> um, sorry to be so vulgar, but it definitely, I feel, and my dad is an alcoholic, and he's a cocaine addict, and my mom grew pot in our backyard and smoked pot you know, regularly, and, you know, so as a kid, I harvested her pot and took it and took my dad's cocaine, and not a kid, as a teenager. Um, so there was just addiction, you know, a lot of addiction. And uh, then my mom's side of the family comes from fairly wealthy Hollywood folks, and my dad is a cardiologist. So, on, so then there's this, like, you have to be thin and you have to be in shape. So the Hollywood people, like my grandma who's now 92, actually was taken away from college because she was hospitalized for anorexia. So that was set in the 30s probably, or even before. So that's kind of early, you know, for, for there to be, you know, an understanding of anorexia. She was incredibly ill. Um, and, you know, she regulated my mother's and her sister's food because they had a cook, and so she would tell the cook, you know, the girls are getting a little plump. You know, so there's been food regulation in the family too. And then there's also food obsession. Um, I realized that my dad um, basically starves himself all day. Now that I'm, now, now as a grown up and someone in OA, and then he binges at night intensively. So he drinks, basically what he does is he might eat like a piece of toast in the morning, and this is my whole life. And then he drinks something like 12 to 14 cups of coffee throughout the day. Um, and then, you know, when he was using Coke, he probably didn't drink as much coffee. And then in order to go to bed at night, you know, he would eat huge quantities of food. And cardiologists are the worst eaters in the world. Um, they eat pure fat, pure sugar. It's unbelievable to be at a cardiology dinner. And then he would drink like a bottle of wine or a couple scotches and pass out. So my childhood was that's watching my dad. And then my mom, you know, constantly watching her weight. And, you know, so it was very, anyways, I ate. <laughs> That's what I did um, to make myself comforted. And as a teenager, I also had, did a huge amount of drugs. Um, it's kind of a miracle that I'm alive. I don't know that I was actually a drug addict, but the things I did were not sane. Like, we took tons of acid and we would drive across a bridge in Taos, New Mexico that was 
450 feet high, you know, because with our lights off on our car, because we thought it was sort of like being Star Wars. Not, like, not, that's not okay. Um, and, but there was no adult in my life to tell me that that was not okay. That's honestly the truth. No adult in my life said, what you're doing is not okay. The way you're acting around food, you know, when I was hiding, sneaking, and one of my um, parents' best friends would take care of us sort of after school. I don't really know what the deal was, but they had food. Like, I didn't care because that house was, my mom was sort of also a hippie, so we had, like, whole grain bread, and she put raw mushrooms in our lunches, and it wasn't like everybody else's lunch. It was, an, you know, kind of a nightmare lunch. But this friend's house had, they had the first microwave I had ever seen. They had frozen things that you could put in the microwave, and she, the mom had just, like, bought them sugar. I mean, it, so I would go, and I just remember climbing the cabinets, you know, for years. That was sort of like, Mace would go there and climb the cabinets and eat. So those pictures are interesting for me because I thought I was fat. I was told that I was fat by my family. And, in fact, you'll see until I – there's a picture of a bunch of um, young women and then their moms. That was me graduating college. It wasn't until I graduated from college that I was actually overweight significantly. Um, but my entire life, I believed I was fat. Additionally, my sister um, managed her weight through pretty serious bulimia and did it, like, in a little bulimia club with her friends. So they would get together after school. They were cheerleaders. I was a punk rocker. We didn't talk to each other. Um, <laughs> we still struggle. Um, but, you know, they would come home after cheerleading practice, super cute, and um, eat, and then they would throw up together. You know, and again, there was no adult in our life that said, hmm, this is really curious behavior, even curious. So what my parents did when I was seven, because they had their open relationship, is they put us in therapy. They were like, oh, we have a fucked up relationship, so put the kids in therapy. I don't even know if they identified it that way, but I've been in therapy essentially my whole life, or I had been, until OA. And as I got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then kind of, you know, went to college, and by the time I was in college, I, I went to Mills my first year, which is an all-women's college. And I was like, there was an RA on my hall who was really cute, and I freaked. You know, I totally freaked out about this new emergent sexuality. Um, even though my parents are really into art, and so we, you know, I grew up around a lot of gay adults. I just, for me, it was terrifying. Um, so then I started saying I was bi, and I said I was bi, I think, for five years before I ever kissed a woman. Um, and with my family, you know, I was a punk rocker. I did drugs. You know, I had a mohawk. Like, so it wasn't really like there was anything I could do that would upset them, which is actually... <laughs> really unfortunate you know in fact I, what I was trying to do was upset people in the family the only thing that I could do that would upset my family was to get fat and let me tell you it worked so beautifully I mean the only thing I could do and I'm telling you I'm a high school teacher now because I have huge amounts of karmic debt and compassion <laughs> compassion for young people who are you know just totally struggling but like the only thing that made anybody pay attention to me was to get fat in fact there's a picture one there where I'm with a dude who was my boyfriend at the time I moved out of my parents house when I was 16 don't let your 16 year old daughter move out like that's just not okay and moved in with my best friend who's 15 and we lived on our own in an apartment in Taos New Mexico which I don't know if you guys know about Taos but just turn around and they're drugs. You know, it's not, you know, it's, I don't know, it's touristy now, but it's a super party scene. Um, and I was date raped and I called my mom and she was like, oh, well, you have to go to therapy or you have to go to karate. I'm up in Taos, New Mexico by myself, living with a 15-year-old. My mom did not get in a car. She did not drive up there. Um, so I did everything I could to get attention and honestly, really the only thing that worked to, was to get fat. And so for me and my story, getting fat was a blessing. You know, I got, you know, my partner always says about me, attention positive or negative. Um, I got a lot of the negative attention for it. And then as I sort of started to come out and I told my whole family, I'm bi, I'm bi, and they were like, yeah, whatever. Like, there's no girl here. So, you know, they weren't, nobody was upset until I actually had a girlfriend. Um, because I just kept saying I was bi. And then, and then several people in my family, including my anorectic, you know, very wealthy Hollywood grandma, said, well, of course you're gay because no man would ever go out with somebody as bad as you. So, which, you know, was ex 
excruciatingly painful because the grandma also, because she's this Hollywood wealthy, you like kind of controls the family with money stuff. Um, so there's like a need to keep an alliance with her. At least I thought there was at that time because I was in college and she was paying for my college. I'm very, very blessed, you know, with my class and ethnic privilege. I'm absolutely aware of that. Um, but it was it was painful, but it was also like a huge victory for me. It was like they finally noticed. You know, they finally noticed that something might not be right. But it wasn't like anybody said, what are we going to do, you know, to help you, except, you know, sort of extreme measures like you have to go on a diet or this is just, it's just unacceptable. No one said, well, maybe, why are you heavy? Or like, what's going on? Or is there a reason? Are you eating over something? Is there a pattern or behaviors that aren't working for you? No one said that. They just said, well, you know, my grandma said, of course, you're gay. You know, because no self-respecting man would would be with you. And then my and then when I was still saying I was bi, everybody else was like, well, if you're bi, then you have a choice. So why wouldn't you be with men? You know, like the logical thing in the world to do is to make your life more easy, which is to be in a heterosexual partnership. So at that time I was pretty unhappy, um, but I was coming out, which was fun, and I was happy about that. Um, and I had sort of really cleaned up my drug behavior. Um, several things happened, and and so when the drugs kind of left my life. And I became kind of, I guess, a straight edge. Um, food became incredibly much more prominent. And I was getting bigger. But in San Francisco at that time, there was a huge fat dyke scene. I mean, a very powerful um, and, you know, a movement that I still have a lot of affection for and believe that there's a lot of healthy thinking. And I actually don't believe it's unhealthy necessarily to be fat, except if you hate yourself. Like, if I hated myself, I hated myself. I mean, I think some people have health issues, you know, but I was part of that scene, but I wasn't part of that scene because the women who I was hanging out with actually really loved themselves, or at least they seemed like they did, and it was a powerful movement, and it was a political movement, and I was just there because I needed somewhere to fit in and feel good. And so I, I, you know, in some way, if I could make an amends now, I'd make an amends to some of those women who were, I was pretending the whole time. You know, I do still believe in the movement, and I, I believe that we stigmatize heavy people in such a painful, horrible way that is totally unnecessary and completely, you know, in line with the way we stigmatize people who are poor, people with disabilities, or people of color. And I find that unacceptable, but I also find that what I did by, like, working my way into that scene was also a little unacceptable. But that was also an indication of how unhappy I was. And I had this really twisted way of finding women who were teeny, little, tiny, teeny women who were obsessed with fat women. Um, and so I gained weight for them. You know, there was one girlfriend in particular who I was, you know, she would never give me what I wanted, and so I just got fatter and fatter and fatter for her. And she wanted, like, I, you know, I, I don't understand. It's totally fine. Like, maybe that was her sexual appetite, or maybe she had other shit she needed to work out, but she, like, I could never be big enough. Um, so anyways, luckily, through another friend and um, a fun little that I had um, in Albuquerque one day when I went home um, was a woman who I had met the year before and was like the most unhappy, depressed person I had, you know, I was like, ugh, can't stand her. Went back a year later, she was still hanging out with my friends there, and she was like this totally hot babe, and we had a little fling, and I was like, what happened to you? And I didn't even realize she had lost weight. Like, that wasn't even it. It was the total spiritual change that she had gone through, and she said, well, I do this thing called OA. And I had been in therapy at this point, you know, trying to be my fat feminist right self and still love my body. And, you know, it was just like, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate myself. And so I was ready. I was ready. I mean, I was sort of at my bottom and it wasn't at my, I was at my largest. I was like 225 pounds, but it was not that. It was not the body. It was the feelings about myself. It was just the hopelessness and the like, I'm trying to get fat for, you know, love, which it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about that. This person just was unavailable. There was not, it was not about what I looked like. So I joined OA in, I believe it's 1999. Um, and, and I've really, ever since then, my mo I only go to consistently two meetings a week. I'm a sort of an OA minimalist. I work about a step a year. Um, I go to the two queer meetings in San Francisco, and I know I should go to other meetings and meet other people, but I am so cozy and happy in those meetings. Um, I won't, you know, leave those meetings. I th I'd love to think that I'll go to other meetings, but, um, and maybe I will, and maybe I won't, you know. 
Uh, and I've just grown so much in this program. This program has given me not just the weight loss, because, you know, theoretically I'm I supposedly still um, 15 to 20 pounds for my goal weight, according to doctor charts. I've been at basically the same weight for the last five years, sort of fluctuating around in a five to seven pound thing, which is not particularly healthy. I struggle with exercise. My dad forced me to exercise as a kid, so I find it fairly repugnant. Um, I have to do it now. I, I have a herniated disc in my back, which of course happened after I lost all my weight. You know, so I was sort of like, yeah, you know, it wasn't. I just get really angry about how people say that weight causes, you know, this plethora of health issues. And, you know, I sat on my classroom floor, which is cement, for seven hours straight grading posters. And I stood up and I, you know, I don't know what happened to my back. But it's been shitty ever since. So I have to exercise. I don't, when I don't exercise, I sometimes can't walk in the morning. Um, but what program has brought me, first, one of the things about my queerness and sort of that fat feminist movement that's changed now as a teacher, one thing is I feel like it's my responsibility to be out as a teacher, which is scary as hell. Teenagers are mean. Um, they're super homophobic. But, you know, being out as a teacher has brought me the most amazing gifts. And I've had, you know, tons of students come out to me. Tons of other students say thank you, you know, just for being you. And more than any of that, parents who've come to me and said, thank you for saving my child. You know, thank you for being a grown-up who can be here for my kids. And um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have that in high school. I didn't, nobody, you know, I was a drug addict. I was, I slept with more people from the ages of 14 to 17 than I have since then. And that's a, like, somebody should have noticed that something was horribly wrong, and nobody did. And so I just feel like it's my job as a teacher to notice when kids are struggling and doing weird things. When kids do weird things, they're struggling, usually. Or they're just, you know, they're teenagers, they're crazy. But, um, and so now, one of the gifts that programs brought me is to sort of follow, like, something recently has been super higher power in my life, which is that kids started to come to me about their issues, you know, all sorts of problems, not just sexuality. And um, I am a big advice giver. I'm a control freak. I like to tell people what to do. And one of my friends said, you know, you really need to go to counseling school. Like, you really need to become a counselor. And so, but being, I, li I get very comfortable in the things I do. So I taught for nine years, and I was pretty happy. At the, and I'm very happy at the school. I teach a social justice school. We do radical curriculum. My kid, you know, we do activist project, project, which I really believe is all about the 12th, you know, the 12th step, which is like, I really believe this program tells us that we have to do politically, spiritually, and emotionally what we're supposed to, you know, what we really believe in the world as long as it's not. Help bring social justice to the world, if I can. Um, that's just my personal belief. I realize that that's kind of like a huge 12-step statement, and, you know, other people may not take it that way. Um, but anyway, so I took a sabbatical, and I went to social work school. And I had a lot of fear, you know, about being a student again, which is, I hate graduate school, but that's okay. Um, I'm supposed to do it. And, like, all these pieces, it, I, I won't even explain how complicated it's been, but all these pieces have come together, including the current school counselor that we had being asked to leave, where I am now going to be my high school's counselor. Not the academic counselor, but the emotional, we call them crisis counselors, which we're going to change that name because I don't, that. That, that doesn't, I don't think that's helpful for kids. Um, but it's a miracle. Like, when I first stepped in that school and I saw the counselor, I was like, I want that job. You know, and immediately my head was like, well, you don't even know how to teach, you know, and you'll never be able to do that. And, you know, but it very slowly through doing the step work, and this is the promises, I don't think this is one of the things I rigidly controlled and manipulated. I just did the next right thing. Like, I wrote the essay to get into graduate school. Um, and somehow got it in on time, you know, and then I made it clear to my superintendent that I would love the counseling position if that ever happened. You know, I didn't fire the guy who, who left. He just happened to be really not the right person for the job. Like, it, all of these pieces have fit together. Um, and my, my master's program doesn't like it that we go back to our place where we worked. Um, but, but, but they've been okay. Like, it's just kind of a miracle that it's all working out. So next year I'll be my high school's counselor and I'll be out, um, which is something I've really debated because what if a kid's having a difficult time and I'm a lesbian and they're homophobic or their religion tells them that's not okay? Um, the basket? Right there. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's, it's a real big debate in my head, but I also just feel, and the other thing I'm going to do is I have to run a group next year as part of my master's program, and I'm going to run a food group. I, you know, we just don't talk about that at school. And the number of kids, boys and girls, there's no sexuality, gay, straight, doesn't even matter anymore. It, it is heartbreaking. They walk into the class, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I, I, I'm not going to eat all day. Like, I want to get into this pair of jeans, and I'm going to start my, like, all of them. And it's heartbreaking for me to see, like, so I'm going to start. I'm, I mean, I've been, the only thing I've never been out about at school is being in OA. And I don't think that it's appropriate for me to come out about that. I actually, that's mine. Um, and I don't need to share that with my kids. But um, I, I do really feel like I have a lot to offer young people. Um, I'm not sure if I'll start a 12-step group, but first just talk, you know, do a body image and food group, you know, and I think that it'll be really interesting to see, and I'll need to lean really heavily into programs so that I don't put my stuff on the kids, so that I don't give advice, so that I don't preach 12-step. I also hate, my mom's a really spiritual woo-woo person, and she proselytizes every one of her new sort of gurus or things, and I have to be really careful not to be a proselytizer because it doesn't work. I really want to do the 12 step like you see what you you know you see what somebody has and then you ask them that attraction not promotion principle has worked for me powerfully in my life around queer politics and around food stuff and then more importantly around spiritual being in the world so um, just to wrap it up you know I didn't talk a lot about how I work the steps but I don't think there's any way for me to separate my um, my identity as, as a lesbian now but like an identity issues are what makes us function in the world. So I'm a lesbian and I'm a compulsive overeater. You know, I'm a lesbian and now I'm a social worker and I'm a teacher and I'm, you know, a, a youth activist. So none of that stuff gets separated from me. The food doesn't get separated. The body image doesn't get separated. I still have days where I look down and I say, oh God, I'm fat, you know, and I say that to my partner and that's just the old stuff and I'm so grateful to have the rooms and I really am grateful for San Francisco's queer meetings. It's just there's something, there was something about that that I desperately needed when I came into program. I needed to be queer and fat and work through those issues. You know, those, those couldn't be separated from me. I think if they had been initially, it wouldn't have stayed in program. So, um, you know, I just encourage folks if they don't have queer meetings to start them. Um, if it seems possible or to come up to the city or places that do, it's powerful. It's very powerful to sit in a room of people, whether they're gay or not, but just to know that everybody in there is sharing two identity issues, you know, more than one, but two, and two, like, core pieces of our being in the world. So that's it. Thank you. I will now draw questions from the Ask It Basket for up to 15 minutes. Uh, and either of you or both of you can answer these questions if you're moved to. Uh, if either of you had trouble being gay and calling God your higher power, how did you reconcile that? Um, as I said, like when I was a kid, I wanted to be a priest and then I sort of shut um, God out of my life. And when I came in the program, um, I didn't want to hear, one of the reasons I stayed away is I kept hearing God or higher power. And when I came come back and started working with my sponsor, I started working step two and step three. And just, I started talking to people who had long-term recovery and reading step two over and over and just making a list of what I wanted from higher power was very basic and it was yeah, you know, something greater than myself that cared about me unconditionally, was stronger than the disease and wanted me to recover. And you know, I talked to a bunch of people and they said just so it wasn't yourself, it wasn't another man because I've done that. And, um, you know, it couldn't just be another person. It could be the rooms themselves, but something greater than myself. And I started to to use that little piece and started just acting as if it existed and turning my food over to it in the beginning. And my food started getting easier, and I stopped white knuckling. And then from there, it's just changed over the last 10 years significantly. Um. 
I was raised Jewish, more culturally than religiously. Um, and for me, the God slash gay higher power is is the same for me as the God um, Darfur higher power, like the genocide that's going on on Darfur or the extremism in this country. Like that kind of God um, that I was raised with, a God that sort of, you know, of, of course the Jewish, you know, tradition is that, you know, the Holocaust, you know, is so permeated into our thinking that kind of God doesn't make sense to me. A God that sort of makes decisions about what people do or do not do, what people have or have not, do not have, that kind of God is a vengeful, there's just no way in my head that that makes sense. Like if I look around the world, even today, a snapshot of what's going on today, why white upper middle class Americans have everything in the world and like 90% of the world have nothing doesn't make any sense to me. There's no religion in that. There's no spirituality in that. There's no God in that. So when I kind of came out, like I was already sort of on that trajectory and a God that would hate queer people um, seems nuts. So um, it, to hate anything or to say any, you know, is is not spiritually sound to me. So, and luckily I had my weird woo-woo mom stuff, despite the fact that she was a heavy proselytizer, she brought in all kinds of other, mostly sort of Eastern Hindu, a little Buddhist, but definitely Americanized, you know, convenient manifestations of those. So for me, you know, I look at nature and I see that every single plant and animal has a fractal pattern in it. That blows my mind. Like the way that the earth is constructed, I don't know how it happened. And the truth is, for OA, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, it's sort of that, like, the, the questioning about wh why we got here is unimportant, sort of why things work, the beauty of the world, when people are kind to each other, what compassion feels like when you're touched and moved and brought to tears, doesn't really matter why. And that's, so, like, I have sort of a very esoteric woo-woo, like, I can't even explain it, higher power. Um, but I believe that millions of people for millions of years probably can't be wrong, that there's something more than us. I'm not really sure that it matters what we call it. You know, and my Orthodox cousins who will not, wouldn't come to my wedding and won't be, won't let their kids in the same room with my partner and I, who feel very justified in their religion, you know, if that works for them, that works for them. You know, but I, I believe in the 12 step principles that whatever we do, if it hurts other people, then we're not following the 12 steps. And so that kind of orthodox Judaism doesn't work for me because it hurts other people. Very seriously hurts other people. So I don't know if that's helpful for whoever asked the question, but that's... How important do you feel it is to figure out if you are lesbian, gay, or bisexual, or just hetero? important at all I think what's important is that you're com you know that we're comfortable with who we are and that if you're attracted to somebody and you love them I mean I, you know I think our society is obsessed with labels you know and that we love to identify the first thing we do when we see someone say are they this are they that where do they fall in this are they you know a billion labels 500 labels you know in my head you know and then usually I meet someone find out that like three-quarters of those labels get thrown away so I think it's a, you know, if you, for me, when I work the steps, it doesn't really matter. For me also, though, being political and being an activist, labels then start to make sense because it puts a, a context and a framework around activism or being political or, you know, like yesterday we went and got married again because I believe the more people who get married, the less chance that we will change the constitution of the state of California, which is a very weighty thing to do. That's a heavy proposition to change the Constitution and say an entire group of people don't count. That, that to me, politically, is a very serious thing that, that could happen in November. So it's my obligation to label myself right now as a lesbian and to go to the, do a political piece of activism that I can to help protect, you know, the future for my students, for example. So, but if someone's struggling with their sexuality, in a way, I, also, I think it's important to talk about it and to acknowledge it and to sit with it and to feel what it's like to be uncomfortable and not eat over it or starve yourself over it. So I don't, yeah, that's how I think about that.
Can you speak about the issue of weight and the butch femme roles? Probably it's a little more acceptable. Um, this is interesting to be heavy and be butch. Um, however, um, again the fat femme, sort of the fat dyke movement I was involved in, um, the heavy femmes, like there was an incredible fetishization. You know, there was I don't know if anyone ever saw Fat Girl magazine, um, but you know like like super high femme heavy women um and kind of like you know light porn sort of um imagery and but i do think that like our culture just as a bigger culture accepts butch women as heavier more easily um i think the idea of being femme is sort of hard to avoid the hollywood cosmo you know whatever those horrible magazines are and the images like you know I, I just saw a gap billboard the other day and I sort of did a double take because I looked at this young woman on it definitely too thin I mean like scary this woman's body so it's really interesting because the thinner you get as a young woman the more really androgynous you become you know when when young women get really super thin like that model thin very often they stop having their period um, start growing body hair, like all sorts of really interesting androgynous things start to happen to the body. So, you know, I, I wish that the lesbian um, scene, w again, wouldn't label people so intensively, but I do, I know that my friends who are butch, who identify as butch and are heavier, tend to have fewer, like, I'm fat, freak out moments, but maybe they just don't say it as much. Maybe, like, in the butch scene, it's not as okay to be uncomfortable with your body. Or maybe when you're butch, you're already having some gender identity questions. I don't think that all butch women want to actually be F to M's, but I do think there's some androgyny issues. You know, that culture, like my partner, she walks into a woman's bathroom and people go, you know, all the time because they're about to tell her to get out of the bathroom. And so if a woman is dealing with that already, like very comfortable in their butch identity, but also having to negotiate with the rest of society, who they are, yes, I am a woman, and it's okay for me to be butch, maybe body stuff is sort of, or weight is becomes less important, or becomes just sort of an add-on to that. Um, I know that when I was sort of in that bit, you know, coming out and going to all the bars and all that stuff, when I was really heavy, the more, like right now, this is me, like this is me, I don't know if I'm butcher fam, I don't know that it really matters. Um, but then, when I was heavy, when I was 225 pounds, I made myself a super high fam. Like, I made it really important to wear, like, little, you know, corsets and have my fingernails painted and lipstick always and, you know, my cute little high heel cowboy boots or whatever because I felt better fat as a high femme than I did sort of whatever I am now. Um, so it just because I felt like there was more acceptance and maybe that fetishization of that particular scene that I was in. So um, that's what I thought. late does this go? I don't, I'm not sure I know. 2.15. Okay, so it's 2.05 right now. Am I got that right? Okay. Um, how have your tattoos responded to weight loss gain? <laughs> oh, and there's something else here. I am fat and I want tattoos, but I'm worried that they will get distorted, stretched, etc. if my body changes. Um, uh, your skin is an incredibly resilient organ. Um, I found that my tattoos uh, what more about tattoos than weight loss or gain is that you take good care of your skin, you keep them out of the sun, um, and that the thing is about tattoos like your clothes, they fade, and you have to get them touched up. So, you know, I know people who said the same thing, and I am not an expert. I would talk to a tattooist. Um, my, none of my ta this one is a tattoo since I've lost weight. So um, none of my tattoos on the rest of my body seem horribly distorted to me. Um, but they, you know, they need to be touched up, and I hate some of them now because I got them when I was 19, and they're 
sort of dumb, you know, to me. So more than that, I would say make sure you want what you want and get a really good, <laughs> and get a really good tattooist and ask them that question. I think a really good tattooist, if you said, you know, I'm really concerned, and there's certain parts of the body where the skin is a lot more resilient and flexible. There's the areas of your body, like the inside, the soft areas where it's thinner, you want to be more thoughtful because that, that skin takes more impact as we gain and lose weight and age. So, um, I think this is the last one here, uh, repeating um, patterns of our parents' behaviors. My mother numbed out every night as far as I can remember with alcohol. Uh, you've inspired me to break my pattern of numbing out so I won't have to face my aloneness with food. Kindly comment on this. I think from for myself doing the fourth step I I saw a lot of my my mother's patterns, my dad's patterns, and then I saw, you know, the patterns that I have. I was repeating their stuff. A lot of my fears of getting thin were repeating my dad my dad cheated on my mother since as, as far as um I can remember. And I did repeat a lot of that with partners in the past. Um from doing the fourth step, I had a lot more compassion for my parents. And um, when I did my fifth step, my, my first sponsor, who is a gay man, basically said, you know, this is your life before step five and after. You can choose to repeat them and, you know, keep working the steps and step seven and all. And you never have to repeat those patterns again. But some of them I've chosen to repeat. Um, but with just working my working the program, having a sponsor, having a, the, the basics of the program, um, I didn't have to, you know, eat over it. And my sponsors, like my first sponsors thing of, you know, feelings have a beginning and an end, which I didn't think. I was afraid. My mother had huge anger issues, would throw, like, glasses of iced tea against the wall when she wasn't in therapy. And um, that was my fear to feel any of my feelings because I thought... I would do that, I'd go crazy, I'd be hospitalized, all that stuff. And, you know, from working program and trusting him, I'd write about stuff, I have a beginning and end to things. And little by little, on each day that I'm abstinent, it sort of helps to not repeat that. I don't know if I've answered it, but um, I've just learned from talking to people and working the steps that I don't have to numb with food and... Or, you know, there's the whole, like, it takes a lot of work for me to remain, you know, in a relationship and monogamous also because that can be, like, another way for me to get a hit just like food. And it doesn't look as bad um, because my primary addiction is this. But thanks. Okay, I think that that's it. Uh, it's time to close this session. Let's thank our speakers. Uh, please let us stand and join hands as we close with the serenity prayer. <laughs>